in the middle of your notices, you will have found, perhaps, um, a prayer guide for the week ahead. Because we're at the start of Holy Week. The start of Holy Week. And in seven days' time, we'll be here again celebrating the risen Son. We'll be thinking of the forgiveness of sins and the promise of new life that is revealed. The hope that we have in the Lord. The hope that we get through his love. But it'd be easy to go simply from the celebration of Palm Sunday through to Easter Sunday. Two great celebratory events. It'd be easy to just move between them and forget about that bumpy ride that actually comes. It's not a smooth journey. And when I say a bumpy ride, I'm not talking about on the back of a donkey. Though, of course, the story does begin with one. But there's something unusual about our Palm Sunday as we read it in Luke's Gospel. Did any of you notice? There's no mention of palms. It's in the other three Gospels. It's in uh, the works of Matthew and Mark and John. They all record the waving of the palm branches. Luke has the cloaks that are laid on the donkey and laid on the road. It's still got that sense of journey, of kingship. But it's a slightly different journey that he's describing. We've sung Hosanna this morning. But Luke doesn't include that either. It's not among the shouts of the crowd. It's not quite the same celebration that's going on here. It's not the same um, nationalistic calling for a king as we see in the other Gospels. It's a day of delight. It's a time of royal presence coming to the capital city. But what sort of king is coming? The donkey is the memorable element across the four Gospels. Not a stallion, not a war horse, but this humble beast of burden. A plodder, determined to go on its walk. And a young one at that. Pure, not ridden before, a simple foal. It's one that gives uh, this sense. So, this is the kingdom of peace that's coming to the city. And as there's no palms, but there's a donkey in all four gospels, sometimes wonder why I don't call it Donkey Sunday. You know, that's the thing that's common to them all. I think we maybe don't because we want that festival razzmatazz. 
we want that sense of the entire city crying out with joy. We want the shouting and the waving of the palm branches that speak of other festivals, not Pentecost, not Passion, not Passover, not Huts, nothing else, not this one. We want that celebration, but it shouldn't be here. Luke, however, is the unplugged version. It's the slightly toned-down experience. It's still got the message. It's still got the king coming on the donkey. It's still got crowds shouting. But the crowd is different. And the inner message is different too. The people who hear joyfully praise as Jesus descends the Mount of Olives are people who have been with him on the journey. They are a crowd of disciples. They are people who know the truth about how he has already been healing the sick, how he has been welcoming the outcast, how he has been bringing wholeness to the brokenhearted. These are people that know what this king is like. They are a crowd who will have witnessed many miracles. They're a gathering of people who have received teaching. They're not merely a group of festival goers that hear a bit of a commotion and then suddenly join in. These people are people who believe and trust in what they say. Do we believe and trust in what we say? Do we have faith in the gospel in the way that we're called to? And as we talk of our faith or as we pass on a greeting, do we know God's love in our heart and are we trying to share something of that love? In the coming week, I wonder, as people greet you, with maybe words of happy Easter. Will they be people who delight in the journey to Jerusalem, in the forgiveness of the cross and the hope of the resurrection? Or will they be people simply passing on the greeting that's next to the bunnies and the chicks in the supermarket shelves? Luke's statement of who is involved on Palm Sunday suggests to us that this is not the crowd that would be shouting crucify later in the week. But perhaps those who would keep their heads low and wonder what is next. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying as I talk of a crowd of disciples that this is only the twelve. Of course, the number of followers has been growing. The disciples have been shaving their faith and making new disciples. 
the word of Jesus is spreading. The gathering of followers has got larger and larger. Remember, um, way back in Luke chapter 10, the Lord had sent out the 72 followers. There was that number that were close and strong enough and sure enough in their faith that could be sent out in pairs to villages and towns taking the message. And on from that, the number would continue to grow. This is a gathering of many followers, all heading for Jerusalem. They're all well informed and they know the hope that is with them. The Pharisees had experienced much of this teaching. And to be fair, some like Nicodemus had come to know Jesus in a new way. They'd heard the message of God's love for the world. But for the most part, the Pharisees were still asleep as others had woken up to Jesus. It seems as if these men who tried to share something of God's word were people who had ears that were deaf, had eyes that were blinded, had hearts that were hardened. For despite having been in the same place and hearing the same teaching that uh, Jesus had shared, the Pharisees just didn't get it. They didn't see Jesus as the promised Messiah. They didn't understand the love that God had for them and that God was doing something new. And so comes their request to Jesus that he might rebuke his disciples, that he might tell them to be quiet, to shut their mouths. There are times that Jesus gives his followers a telling off, that he says that they need to think again about what they're saying. But those are quite different occasions. There are times like when having spoken about his coming death and resurrection, Peter had claimed, this shall never happen to you. That needed correcting. Likewise, he calls his people as having little faith at the calming of the storm. The times he speaks out against the disciples, it is when there is their failure to recognize his power and presence. It's when that needs addressing that he will rebuke them. The rebuke that is given by Jesus in today's passage is not as requested, but is aimed 
at those who are the requesters. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It declares that the Pharisees are not able to understand what even the most inanimate object knows. They are not able to speak in a way that the stones could sing praise. It's not right for the disciples to be quiet because all of nature would sing about the man that is in their midst. Creation recognises who the Christ is. At his birth, the Magi spotted the star in the sky, pointing to Bethlehem, showing the way. Later in the week, there will be a dark shadow, an eclipse of some sort, that descends upon the earth as Jesus dies upon the cross. Each miracle that has been performed has been a going against the natural order and process. It has been nature making way for the Lord. Not just wind and waves obey him, but disease and illness have been cast out. Yet although nature recognises the presence of the king, Earth's humanity in the shape of those in privilege and power and authority are the ones that fail to make way, that fail to step aside for the true power, the true authority, the true king. From the disciples there have been cries of joy, for this is their king. That is coming. But then, as Jesus looks upon the city, he has a different sort of crying to make. He weeps. He weeps with sadness. Here he is, just as Zechariah had foretold the coming king on the foal of a donkey. A king proposing peace and hope and freedom for the prisoner. A new life is being offered. But like the Pharisees walking beside him, the city will not recognise him. They are blinkered. In a few days' time, there will be a trial and a judgment pronounced upon Jesus. It will be unjust. This man that's entering the city is without sin, but yet he'll pay the price for all sins. He will take that weight upon his shoulders and cry in pain a message of God's grace from the top of a cross. 
But for now, the tears of Jesus foretell the weeping that will be experienced throughout the city. For in a few years' time, they will experience judgment. The city will be surrounded, as happened before the exile. A siege will be there, and then it will become ruined. The temple will be destroyed. Again, there will be a rubble in the place where the people thought that God dwelt. Where will be their hope as they cry? Where will they have their trust? Our hope in times of challenge can be in the king who weeps with us. In the king who wept over the city of Jerusalem. Fearing for its future, knowing the path that it would have. We have the king who wept with his friends when Lazarus was in the tomb. The king who would weep in agony, taking our place on the cross. Let us be people who cry in the times of sorrow and sickness, for those times have not yet ended. But let us also cry out praise to the King, putting him first in our heart, letting his way of love direct us in our life. May we always cry out proclaiming, Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. Amen.